Hello everyone, welcome to the Warif podcast, a place for dialogue on development that promotes social, economic and environmental progress. My name is Abir and I'm your host. It's my joy to connect with fellow developmental professionals, practitioners, academics and enthusiasts. My mission is to make the world a more kind, safe and clean place. I believe even small steps in the right direction can cause a chain reaction towards larger positive impact. Let's meet our guests and learn how they're working towards a better world. Today's guest is Dr. Danielle Levine. I would say that Dr. Levine needs no introduction. I have known Dr. Levine for the past two years. I came across his book while researching about financial literacy. I was on a trip in London and coincidentally saw his book on the Waterstones outdoor bookshelf. The title caught my attention, unknowingly, of the script of the book. I just read the few lines and found that I liked the dry sense of humor and the tonality. Eventually, I read the book in one day and reread it many times afterwards and gave it as presents to my colleagues in the field who all seemed to enjoy it. Dr. Levine is a board member at Lechtenstein Foundation. He is, uh, has been advising international organizations and development agencies worldwide in the development of their financial and capital markets, as well as numerous political and economic matters, including country debt, restructurings, privatizations, trade negotiations, failures of financial institutions and regulatory supervisory agencies and conflict resolution. Dr. Levine regularly lectures at universities and conferences on topics relating to financial literacy, economic reform, capital markets development, strengthening of supervisory institutions, financial integrity and ethics, and conflicts between secular and religious legal systems. He is the recipient of several prizes and awards relating to his academic and advisory work. Dr. Levine received his legal education at the University of Zurich in Switzerland and Columbia University School of Law. He is the publisher of the book I mentioned that was titled Nothing But a Circus, Misadventures Among the Powerful, which is an anthropology book about power, about Dr. Levine's adventures from Abu Dhabi to Luanda, Moscow to Beijing, and at the heart of the UN and the US government. Welcome, Dr. Levine. Let's start from the very beginning. Tell us a little about where you grew up, how your growing up years influenced who you are now. Thank you, Abir. Thank you for having me and for this very kind introduction. My background probably in, in my, my work in development is a result of my uh, nomadic life as a child. My father was a diplomat, so I moved from the Middle East to Africa to back to the Middle East to Europe in my early years. And I would say that uh, it was particularly my very early childhood in the 60s in, uh, in East Africa, based in Nairobi, but traveling throughout East Africa, that uh, exposed me for the first time, not only to cultures very different to mine and languages very different to mine, as a little boy, I spoke Swahili and Kikuyu and Luo, uh, languages that I largely forgot. But when I later tried to learn Arabic, the Swahili came in handy. So it exposed me not only to utterly alien cultures, but also for the first time in my life where I experienced being a minority and uh, living in a place where I was not in the majority, I think, opened up a certain sensitivity to others, to use that term, uh, and uh, and 
probably made my life a little bit easier later to immerse myself in cultures that weren't my own. Hmm. Do you think that the reason of your upbringing, living in multiple uh, places during uh, your early ages, has like contributed to the way you think about localizing development? Because you have mentioned a lot in your book and emphasized about the importance of localizing development in Africa and many other continents. You know, I, I wish I could tell you that I developed this fantastic theory of localized development on my own. But first of all, it's not novel. Others have talked about localized development. Um, but to the extent that that has been my mantra over the last, I would say, 25 years, it is really more a result of having failed. You know, there's a beautiful statement in sports you use it to say you're either winning or you're learning. Uh, in other words, sometimes we really need to fail in order to advance and to learn. And for me in my work in the mid-90s, particularly in Africa, I was involved in just this in traditional type of development where you have outside advisors and consultants importing solutions. And I experienced very firsthand how ineffective that was. So mm. in part, it was, yes, living in different cultures and exposing myself to that. But in part, it was really just my own personal professional failures, be it as a as a lawyer, be it doing World Bank or IMF projects uh, all over the world, in particular in Africa, that made me reach the limit of what I think I wanted to do with my life and, and recalibrate and rethink it in the mid to late 90s. Uh, so th that was my turning point. Hmm. I have two questions uh, to what you've just uh, mentioned. Very interesting points. I would like to ask you about like you spoke about, which is very important, and I really believe you when you say failure actually leads to success. If you don't fail, you don't innovate in your life. So I would like to know like, if you could mention or share with us maybe two or three of the most challenging or like failures that you faced in your life and what was it about and how that contributed to your personal and professional growth. Well, my goodness, there have been so many failures. Uh, it would it would take up multiple <laughs> podcasts. But I think that, uh, you know, one that I've described in the book you kindly mentioned earlier uh, in the chapter on Angola called Luanda Lessons is probably a, a good illustration of that. It's certainly not the only one, but a good example where uh, this was in the years 97, 98, 99, where I had approached working there and it, had, it was projects having to do initially with financial literacy and then later on with political mediation between the government mm -hmm. and the UNITA uh, rebels. Uh, this is before Savimbi's death. And mm -hmm. the initial work with financial literacy, I approached, as we always do, I was involved in some World Bank projects and our own law firm had a large project directly under the Ministry of Finance and the Prime Minister. Uh, and the idea was to, uh, to teach a young group of Angolan professionals who were involved in, in directly or indirectly in the establishment of a new financial market uh, and maybe just as a little bit of background here, at the time in Angola, it was so that the the two large sources of revenues were distributed between the government and the opposition. So the oil, the oil market and resources, both onshore and offshore in Cabinda, were controlled by the MPLA, the government, and the diamond resources were controlled by UNITA and Savimbi, the opposition. And it meant that the new, newly developed financial and stock market was something that hadn't been distributed yet. So it was an opportunity for us also to include people who would otherwise not talk to each other because they were from different political camps. And we approached that as traditional advisors would, which is we went there, we lectured about, you know, supply and demand and price formulation and so on. And for me, at the time, the person who was assisting us on the Angolan side 
over lunch once took me to visit this enormous informal so-called black market on the outskirts of Luanda, where everything was traded and where there was this very sophisticated pricing mechanism, was this enormous barter market. And it became clear to me that how embarrassing my performance had been because I'd spoken to them about supply and demand and the value of money and how fungible it is and so on and so on and inflation. When they lived in a war economy and they didn't need me to teach anything on that, they knew these things a lot better than I did. What they really needed is our assistance in formalizing that economy. And for me, it was one of those, it's now 25 years ago, it was one of those moments that made me completely rethink how we approached it. So it wasn't so much about making it local as much as, uh, because I think everyone would agree that development has to be local, but it was really about transferring a key amount of know-how and tools, not just know-how, meaning not just academic lectures, but actual tools, mm-hmm. the proper super, supervise, supervisory methods, building the institutions, uh, developing TV programs and school curriculums on financial literacy, not just talking about the importance of financial literacy. So developing those tools and then transfer them, transferring them to a local team, and then most importantly, allowing the local team to run with it. So that, so that development becomes really a process of evolution and not some imported solution. Uh, because the imported solutions, whether it's done by the World Bank or by McKinsey or by anybody else, really are not sustainable. They don't have lasting impacts. Uh, it's really about transferring the toolkit and the basic know-how and then mm-hmm. basically stepping away and being available to the extent here or there uh, support is necessary or desired, but stepping away and allowing people to make their own mistakes, just like we've all made our own mistakes. It's not that the financial markets in the United States or in Europe or in the Gulf or anywhere else, uh, you know, were imported overnight. They evolved over decades, over hundreds of years in many cases. Uh, And the same is true here. These things really are very, very local. And whatever doesn't evolve on the ground based on that toolkit, it's good to jumpstart it with that toolkit. But then you have to step away and allow people to make their own choices. And it happened to me many times over my career that the solutions or the models or the structures that I recommended were not the ones followed for whatever reason. Maybe I was wrong or maybe people just saw things differently. Uh, and it's important as in a, anyone working in development to have the ability to step away and allow that process to, to take hold. And that's true way beyond just financial models. That goes for political structures, constitutional models, what we believe are gospel mm-hmm. with respect of separation of powers or separation of religious law and secular law, things like that that have tr- uh, local solutions that we need to step away from and allow to evolve, uh, not always assume that we know it better coming in as a development expert. Absolutely. I, I abs- Actually, thank you for mentioning the example on Rwanda, because I remember, I still remember that this was my favorite uh, part of the book, actually, because, uh, you know, us as international development practitioners, sometimes we forget, we become too you know, uh, arrogant uh, about uh, our knowledge and we forget to to have proximity, you know, with the people on the ground. And the example you mentioned touches, exactly touches the point. It's on point when you said that you went to that like place in Rwanda, your, your driver actually took you to that place in Rwanda and you were lecturing people about financial literacy, but apparently it existed and there was an institution, a localized one. 
So proximity, as you mentioned, is, is very, I think, is very important when it comes to capacity building in, in uh, underdeveloped uh, countries, as you mentioned. I would want you like to maybe just for our listeners, can you please elaborate more about the toolkits? You've, uh, we've spoken about it before, but can you please talk more about that? Sure, with pleasure. I- you know, let's take a step back here. Uh, yeah. In institutions that are engaged in developments, whether they're private consultancies or the very large multilateral institutions, the the local developments, such as the African Development Bank, or in, let's say in the in the Southern African context, we even have a more local one like the DBSA, the Development Bank of Southern Africa, or the World Bank, or the IMF, or the EBRD in Eastern Europe. I mean, all the development institutions uh, have moved into a direction where the process of development has unfortunately in many areas, not all, but in many areas, turned into a sort of a consultancy uh, diagnostic study. Uh, So if you take the area of financial literacy, I don't see much value in going to name any country you want. It doesn't really matter now, but let's say let, let's say you go into a country that has suffered from an absence of a financial market. So let's say I go into a country like Chad uh, and I say, let, let's think about financial inclusion. What does it mean? The idea of bringing in development advisors, whether they're all very capable people, whether it's McKinsey's or people from the London Stock Exchange or whether it's World Bank people, bringing them in to spend a year or two to do a diagnostic study on the need for financial inclusion or political inclusion or social inclusion or access to funding such as microfinance, to do a study like that to me has very little value, very little value, because what the outcome needs to be is fairly well known. Yes, you can calibrate it. You can decide whether in financial literacy programs, which age group is most effectively targeted. Does it make sense to have gender-specific programs because women and men or girls and boys consume this information differently. There's some interest in that, but the resources spent on these diagnostic studies are so disproportionate. And the huge danger that you have, and I've experienced this time and time and time again, is when you do large diagnostic studies, the the biggest danger is not that you're wasting resources. The biggest danger is that there's no follow-up on the study. Until a few years later, someone else comes in and does an, another study. Uh, and I don't see the value in most areas. Uh, and, and in some place, of, yeah. Yeah, of overlaps. And in the end, exactly. what you really need is the follow-up. So, yeah. what, yeah. so when you ask me about the toolkit, and, and by the way, I can give you many examples. Take, take the area of property rights. Mm-hmm. You know, One of the real shortcomings in development and one of the shameful shortcomings is that in so many countries, we have failed to develop good property rights structures, the proper laws, the proper institutions, the proper registry systems. And there really is no excuse for it. People like Hernando de Soto, the prominent Peruvian economist who wrote this beautiful book on the mystery of capital, uh, Mm. the, the methods on how we need to do property rights. But if you take a country like Egypt, where it takes something like 400 different steps to register your property, the outcome is no one registers the property. And the consequential damage on an economy for not registering properties astronomical. He writes about it far more eloquently than I could ever uh, express. So I'm not going to try to paraphrase his findings. But the, the danger is when you all you do is diagnostics, when the solutions are fairly obvious, uh, mm-hmm. is, is very large. So when you ask me why do the toolkits, 
what we concluded is, yes, there's an importance on going and teaching and talking about the importance of something. But in many areas, the basics that we need, whether you're talking about financial development, uh, economic empowerment, healthcare, vaccination programs, you know, sometimes it's not that complicated. If you're worried about malaria, I don't think you need to go and do diagnostic studies. You connect with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and make sure you distribute malaria nets. So sometimes the action items are fairly obvious. So our There's a our shortcut point, you mean. Yeah. It's a, yeah. Yeah, it, it, you can later on refine strategies and tactics with further studies. Absolutely. But the, but what's really important is to jump to show some success. Of course. So the toolkit, the toolkit was essentially a way of saying, look, mm-hmm. if you take an area of proper state governance, what should a parliament look like? What is the role of a government? How do I uh, what are my anti-corruption efforts? How do how do I privatize in a clean way? that doesn't just benefit a few people in a country? How do I include the population in the financial market, in the banking market? How do I explain the importance of savings and not putting the cash under your mattress, right? To do that, I don't need to write diagnostics anymore. I don't need consultants to tell me it's important. What I really need is, for example, I need to have the TV programs or the social media platforms in today's world available, the investment games that kids can play to understand how do I open a bank account? How do I, what is an insurance policy? How do I access small business loans for my, for my whatever size business that I have? And so those tools together with the state governance, the top-down tools, meaning the legislation, absolutely, yeah, yeah. both bottom-up yeah. and top-down, those tools are, are available. Yeah. So what yeah. we did, what so you we do reversible, the, right? You do top-down and bottom-up. Right. Bo- both, yes. You need to do both. Meaning bottom up, you need to educate the population and give them access. And from the top down, you need to have Beautiful. the yeah. institutional commitment. If you don't do both, you're going to fail. And this is true whether you're doing economic development, healthcare mm-hmm. development, uh, developing proper schooling systems from the from the top down and from the bottom up again. In other words, you can you can build the most beautiful schools. If individuals don't have access to it, I don't see there's much point, right? And access involves many areas, transportation systems, access, literally understanding the importance of education. Same thing you see today in the pandemic. In other words, Mm -hmm. you can develop the most beautiful vaccines, Mm -hmm. but if you don't educate about them and, and, and find a way to explain to people the need to vaccinate, there's Mm -hmm. not much point in a vaccine rollout. So you need to do both at the same time. There's a gap, of course. And um, the toolkit that you're talking about all uh, lies under the Lechtenstein Foundation, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. So there was a a, a predecessor uh, company in the US, in New York, that that, uh, I ran with some partners starting in the mid-90s, and those were the experiences. uh, And that, in turn, was a result of disappointment. So maybe to take a step back, I'd worked for years in a very large New York law firm, and uh, we had done several deals in Africa, uh, large transactions such as privatizations, where I witnessed firsthand the limited effect. So, for example, if you are uh, a South African state-owned company trying to privatize uh, and transition, in which, which was in- increasingly after Mandela got out of prison in the early 90s, became uh, uh, a target and an objective, 
if you don't include the population in these privatizations, if people cannot access shares in these companies, for example, all you're doing is transitioning from a state monopoly to a monopoly of a very few wealthy individuals, right? And so, but you can't just snap your fingers and say, well, I'm going to have the population participate. You need to have many things that work. You need to have a financial market that work. You need to have, people have to have access to it. They have to have an understanding and knowledge of it. So all those things have to be in place. Mm-hmm. And, and unless you approach that holistically, it's going to fail. And so mm-hmm. we developed init- that, that initial toolkit in our own company in the mid-90s in mm-hmm. the in the first African projects and then rolled it out. And then the also, role of the... Oh, trend since the 90s, these toolkits. Since the 90s, yes. I yeah, see. 97, okay. 98, 99 uh, okay. were the first years. And the Liechtenstein and His Highness the Hereditary Prince with the idea of taking this methodology of this type of toolkit transferring the know-how and the toolkit, uh, and not just to the current professionals, but here comes the most important part, which is that you're transferring it also to the next generation. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a beautiful, beautiful sentence by Franklin Roosevelt, the former American president, yeah. uh, in the middle of the last century, who said, we cannot always build the future for our youth, but we can mm. build our youth for the future. Beautiful. Uh, and uh, and yeah. so essentially, as we, as we uh, worked in this field, what you realized is in many, when you do development, it's another one of those lessons you learn the hard way. When you're targeting current people who are in current functions, many cases you're going to be blocked for a number of reasons, but people have their comfort zone and someone who's done something for 20 years or 10 years doesn't really want outside people coming in telling him or her how to do things differently and so we found the most effective target for this type of transfer of knowledge and tools was the next generation of leaders and so increasingly in our work that goes also today beyond development but also working in conflict zones and and building new generations that can emerge uh, it is really the importance of teach the teacher and targeting really consciously targeting young train the trainer and and Mm. targeting consciously young people sometimes very young people people who are 18 20 22 years old at the beginning of their careers uh, before because it's so much easier to learn something new than to unlearn a bad habit absolutely danielle i want to ask you so like since i wouldn't ask you about fragile states i will ask you about something that is the most challenging conflict zones when you i'm sure you've applied these tools to conflict zones has there like any successful story or case study where you have implemented these tools and they actually were successful and did a tremendous change in that community or city or country whatever it is can you share a successful case study? Yes. The, so if you take a step back, though, with conflict zones, I do have to take a step back to explain this. When you're dealing in a country that is currently uh, in conflict, whether it's in Africa, the Middle East, in, in, in many, unfortunately, there's no lack of conflict in our world today, yeah. Uh, yeah. as there has never been. And yeah. when you do that, you cannot just go in there and say, let's do a economic development pro- development program. So the first challenge that you have in any country, including in conflict zones, is you have to look at the most important challenges facing a country. 
And in conflict zones, countries that are either in civil war or in wars between countries, the first, the first point that you have to do is you have to get a group of people together into these initiatives mm-hmm. who are up on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means in many cases, uh, the most successful projects that we have, and I'm defining success very, very modestly. In other words, if I, I'm, I feel like I've been successful if I can get five or 10 people who are, who are currently on opposite sides of a war or conflict to work on something together. To me, that's success. And if I can get them to work on in many cases before we even get about economic development about talking constitutional development what does that mean it means that together we develop new models for what the way the countries should be organized uh, and without naming specific countries i want to don't want to put people we're working with in harm's way right now but there are several countries that we're working in uh, including countries with very pronounced tribal structures where we're getting people from uh, very opposing sides together and saying, uh, before we start rebuilding the country, we have to understand how should this country be organized? Is it a centralized system? Is it decentralized? What role are you going to be playing? Should the parliament, should there be a parliament representing the regions? Should we have one chamber, two chamber? How do I avoid corruption? How do I avoid uh, a, a, a structure where there's just one person with power and no one else? How do I avoid these zero-sum games where very few people win and everyone else loses? And so to work with this next generation towards that kind of a future is extremely inspiring. And yes, there are some, there are some wonderful uh, examples from that. There is, of course, Abir, I'm sorry to say, an awful lot of disappointment. Uh, one of the countries were with tremendous disappointment for me, uh, which, which I've also written about, is Syria where mm-hmm. early on in the conflict, we were able to work in a so-called project by star that we had in our foundation to work with a small group uh, of mm-hmm. different parts of the country in different groups, different religious groups, uh, because at the time the war uh, didn't have any dominant uh, force winning. Everyone was losing. That changed in, uh, in 2015 uh, and the project en- had ended by then. So uh, it was a disappointment. So there's an awful lot of failure and Anybody who works in development, whether it is in mediation, in conflict zones, whether it is in financial development, healthcare, property rights, whatever this sustainable living, uh, whatever area, I would recommend to everyone that that if you can't handle that kind of failure, this may not be the right type of area for you. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you because I could hear from your voice that you're so passionate about what you're talking about and your field. Can you like tell talk more about like what has influenced and continues to inspire the force that you are today what ignites your passion every day to work in this field you know the the real uh, the real passion for me is watching people that i've known and worked with for decades in many cases sometimes for years sometimes really for decades watch them later on become wonderful contributors to their society. And that doesn't necessarily have to be politics. That can be in the social context, sometimes religious leaders. We don't have to define it too narrowly. Um, So having had any kind of even modest contribution to that is hugely gratifying. I think the most dangerous, uh, the most dangerous thing is to be too bombastic about how we set our goals. Uh, So if you work in development, 
the first thing you have to do is you have to be satisfied with staying behind the scenes. The success is not going to ever be your success. The success in development is the success of those that you've managed to help at some point, even, even in a small way along the way. And being able to witness that is, is extremely gratifying. I mean, it, it, I, I don't want to overstate it because it sounds odd and I don't want to make it sound saccharine. But, but it's a little bit the, the pride that you feel with your kids as your kids get older and you see them evolve into incredible people and bypass you in many cases. And I cannot tell you, Abir, how many of the people that uh, I've had an, the opportunity to help and work with over the years who have bypassed me and left me in their dust, who have, you know, have been far more skilled in many things than I ever have been. And th that is a incredibly gratifying experience. So um, it's also the, the ability to, to redefine progress, perhaps. I think that um, sometimes we, we confuse noise and movement with progress, but that's not, really, that's not really true. Sometimes just because you're doing a lot of things doesn't mean you're getting a lot done. Uh, it, do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes you have to be able to step back, it's hand noise. something over. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. just noise. And so the people that have influenced my thinking in that have also been, um, you know, people like this wonderful person like Daniel Kahneman, the, the Nobel mm -hmm. Prize winner um, and behavioral, in, in behavioral psychologist who won it for, for economics, wrote this wonderful book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And, and now is coming out actually on the same day as my next book is coming out on May 18th with a new book with two co-writers co with Olya Siboni and, uh, and uh, Cass Sunstein coming up on, on noise and that the ability to uh, to separate this effectiveness from noise or noise defined perhaps as useless variability is so important um, and so these types of, of thinkers have have you know given me so much more and, and than, than I could ever give back here and, and influence my thinking so the, the finding gratification in yes. being able to make that kind of a small contribution is hugely, uh, yes. is, is really wonderful. And, and I think that those in development, and maybe that goes for any professional area, but I think people who define success only as the ultimate recognition, being seen by the whole world as something, um, will end up just being depressed because there's no way Absolutely. to feed that beast. You really have to you have to just be so content with having had some influence and, and unfortunately, and also dealing with the disappointments and, uh, and moving on, not, not stopping when you have a setback and there are lots of setbacks. And I don't think, I don't think uh, there is a profession that doesn't have that. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And I completely like the emphasis on uh, when you mentioned that, a stillness and dynamism is very important. And, you know, especially for the coming generations, when I read a lot about the behaviors of the upcoming generations, Generation Z, for example. So instant gratification is something that is important for uh, generations that, uh, in, in anything, like in any industry. And uh, what COVID had taught us all, I guess, is to be still and what that means is that we need to find instant gratification and in just the small and simplest things in life and like just being and being in the present moment. And I guess that's when the ideas 
come to mind and uh, you know you could do big big stuff so i want to also go back to one point you mentioned before to me and you mentioned it right now you said that you're working on a new book and you mentioned to me that it's going to be a little bit dark I'm, i'm very interested and very excited looking forward to that so can you tell us more about that book and what's how different is it from the previous one Sure, the, it's very different. The previous one that you kindly mentioned really dealt with uh, different episodes from my life, some from development, some from other areas. The idea of the last book was to take 10 chapters and show different angles of power, how people develop in power. And so my experiences in development was one of those. But um, the next book, it's called Proof of Life. And it details uh, 20 days uh, that I spent in late 2014 uh, after I was asked look, to look for a person who had gone missing in Syria in the war. Uh, and it was a, a 20 days uh, of a really a quite unusual experience that took me all over the Middle East and the Gulf, uh, uh, ended up not only in the search for this missing person, mm. but also... Uh, exposed me to all aspects of the war economy, the trade in drugs and weapons and trade in people. Mm. Ended up, human trafficking. Uh, human trafficking, young girls mm. that were taken from little villages in Syria that I ended up uh, meeting in the, in, uh, in the Gulf. And, and just watching what the war economy does and, and how in the war, it, in a war, very few people become you know, uh, stratospherically wealthy and managed to, to succeed in a war and everyone else gets wiped out. And so uh, I wrote down that book uh, really in an attempt to, to um, force people to pay attention. That's my goal. And it has now been optioned for film rights also. So I'm very pleased about that because the book's coming That's out amazing. in May. And, it, and in fact, be a little funny nugget to you is that Which, yeah. which I don't think I've ever told you, is that the book yeah. that you read, Nothing But the mm. Circus, mm -hmm. I actually wrote that book, a lot of that book, I wrote during these 20 days. Uh, on, on, of, yeah, I, I did it wow. in, as, a, as a form of therapy. In other words, just at the end of every day, just to, because those were such difficult days that I, that I, I spent a lot of time writing uh, on that other book. So just as a little nugget, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. So like writing is your solace. I love that. Is my solace, yes. Yeah. So if if, if I would ask you something um, like off topic, if you had one superpower, what would it be and why? Oh, <laughs> I, it's, it, I think it is so far from that. You know, you mentioned earlier the instant gratification. I think that, uh, and in today's age, I'm trying to give you a thoughtful answer rather than just give you a one, one sentence answer. I think in today's age, especially with social media and so much disinformation, which you see now also in the, in, uh, in the pandemic, uh, I think we're all, not just younger generations, but all of us are losing the ability to distinguish between happiness and pleasure. Mm. Uh, and this, this instant gratification, this firing of endorphins when someone likes your Instagram post or your Facebook post, That, that instant gratification is the sense of pleasure, but the deeper sense of a sustained happiness uh, mm. that has nothing to do with that um, is in a deeper, quieter, still place. Uh, and so if there's any kind of superpower, it's to not only make that distinction, but find a way to exhale into a moment of happiness uh, and move away from that 
instant, constant hunt for pleasure. I love that. I love that. I mean, that I was, I was just going to ask you what advice would you give to younger generations? And I guess you would say the same um, answer about um, finding solace and pleasure in small things, I guess. Yes, and, and learn to, uh, you know, yeah. I'm in no position to dispense doubt to younger generation. I, I learn more from younger generations than the other way around. But, um, you know, one, one, important, uh, one important skill that perhaps younger generations are burdened with, uh, mm-hmm. I would say this way, it's harder for them to obtain, and it's not their fault. It's really growing up in an age of social media and this yes. instant yes. type of information is, we we we're now living in an age of constant self-expression. You're, and people post pictures of themselves. People post opinions and everything. Like everything, um, and and I don't need to go into that. I think on the on the issues of social media, this is wonderful documentary called "The Social Dilemma," which I highly recommend yeah. people watch. Yeah. Um, but the inability to doubt. Uh, Bertrand Russell, there's this this you know wonderful, fabulous British philosopher and mathematician said that the the whole problem with the world is that fools and fanatics are always so certain of themselves and wiser mm. people are always so full of doubt and uh, and i do believe that that to have to have wisdom mm. you you have to have doubt and and i include myself in those who are in danger of forgetting it it's terribly it's a delusion to think that somehow we've seen enlightenment and no one around us has so so I'm in no position to to give advice to younger generations. I really am not. But it's a wish more than advice. Speaking. It's a it's a wish. It's a wish more that we yeah. that we don't lose the ability to doubt ourselves yeah. because I don't really see growth yes. and I also don't see happiness without that. Yeah. Do you use any certain like uh, practices to ground yourself so that not to uh, uh, I mean uh, fall into the trap of um, like instant gratification? Well, uh, when you ask specifically about practices, that's a, you know that, that gets very personal. I, I practice, it is, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, <laughs> if I you mean, don't uh, mind, yeah, yeah. Beyond relationships, I mentioned it briefly actually in my next book yeah. because it yeah. helped it helped me throughout uh-huh. this process, which was so hard. I, I practice a a Japanese healing art called Jinshinjitsu, which wow. is uh, something you can use to heal others, and uh, but it's so terribly powerful because it, you can also use it for yourself. And so it's it's a very deep, nice. Um, it's nice. a deep healing art that has existed for thousands of years, uh, has very deep mystical Kabbalistic roots too, uh, and it has been something that for me personally has has guided me for many years and has has helped me. It, I, I cannot say it has grounded me because I cannot describe myself as being grounded, but it has, it's a process. Uh, mm. And in that process, it has, it has supported me tremendously. Indeed, indeed. So aside from uh, practicing martial arts as one of your hobbies, uh, what other hobbies do you practice or enjoy? We want to don't know, think of it. Danielle, more. I don't have to, <laughs> people, people talk about hobbies in a strange way. It's a very strange word to me. It's uh, mm. If something is important enough to you, I don't really call it a hobby. Sometimes when I get mm. uh, CVs and applications in the foundation from jobs and people have a little rubric at the end that say hobbies and people include sometimes reading in there. So it, to me, that's a little odd. There is something that you love to do. It becomes something that you love to do. I don't think of it as a hobby. The word hobby connotes that you don't do it professionally perhaps mm. but to me that's that's odd you know going for long walks or reading or spending 
you know, a, a, a lovely time with a friend or with my family uh, is silly to describe that as a hobby. So, I, so the word hobby is to me a little bit too odd to answer. There are lots of things I love to do uh, that are important to me and I consider them essential for that reason too. So it's, I don't divide my life as things that are strictly my professional life. So listening to music or reading a book is very much part of who I am as much as working in the area of development or mediation. So I don't really separate those. So I can't really call any of that hobbies. I'm sorry. Sorry to disappoint you. No, 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 absolutely. I just wanted to get to know you more personally. So I wanted to ask you also if you had, if you would pick one dream project that you'd like to solve, what would that be? And where would that be? Uh, I probably would have answered this question differently a few years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. if you're asking me now of a dream project mm -hmm. because of the urgency of it, it's something that our foundation in particular, the princely house in Liechtenstein mm -hmm. is launching and something called the Liechtenstein impact forum is to deal, uh, to, to find methods to improve the quality of our discourse and to the, to improve the quality of our information. And this doesn't just mean eliminating disinformations and conspiracy theories, but just improving the quality in the way individuals interact and to improve the quality of the information and the understanding that is being shared. You know, there is a, a crucial difference between knowledge and understanding. Not all knowledge is understanding. And so uh, if there is something to work on in this particular initiative that we are, we're, we're now preparing right now in these months, actually, this form of information quality initiative that goes very far. This doesn't just go into search engines and flagging false information. This goes far deeper than that. Uh, is something that I'm in, I'm increasingly passionate about in this in this in this part of my life in this part of my work. Wonderful. I really don't want to end uh, our conversation. So every time I speak with you, there's uh, every time I speak with you, there's no second of boredom, honestly. But before we close, sadly. Uh, do you have any announcements that you'd like to uh, maybe share with us or anything else you'd like to add for the audience? Not really. I just actually mentioned it. I appreciate it. And it doesn't have to be our last, our last conversation. But really, this, uh, this new initiative by uh, something that we will be announcing, the Liechtenstein Impact Forum, that deals not only with information quality, but also finding mm -hmm. new solutions to challenges, including environmental challenges and the ability Absolutely. of governments to plan long-term even though there's no the, even though we cannot deliver short-term incentives things that are becoming increasingly dire in a climate uh, catastrophe that we're heading towards if mm -hmm. we don't so where we have super negative effects essentially so-called tipping points if we don't avert that uh, the new ways to approach that and collaborating with others who of course have been thinking about it in some in some cases for many more years than myself uh, those are the initiatives that we're working on that we'll be announcing in the coming weeks and months. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Danielle, for your time. My it's pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you. To speak to you. Thanks for joining us and listening to Arif. Remember that you can make a difference in the world, even with small steps in the right direction. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a rating and a review. If you have a suggestion or a comment for future episodes, email me at abwer at warif.com. Until the next episode, have a good one.